The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, May 1st, 2017, from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Sebastian Gorka, Gorka, is out of the White House, but not out of government. The deputy assistant to the president, who was voted student most likely to be a Bond villain, but a George Lazenby Bond villain, will not necessarily be leaving the Trump orbit entirely. Was it his ties to a far-right, let us say, Nazi-inflected Hungarian resistance group that did him in? It was not. It wasn't his embarrassing TV appearances. That's a bit of a straw man, an argument from extremists I wouldn't expect from the BBC. Uh, let's, let's not get carried away here. Uh, Sean Spicer simply sent a message in his masterful press conference yesterday afternoon. Sean Spicer, masterful. Okay, later, same interview. Question was about the original Trump travel ban. So are you saying right. this has gone according to plan? Broadly, this is what you Absolutely. want. Absolutely. But it wasn't Gorka's bald-faced, well, goatee-faced dishonesty. It wasn't the fact that his PhD seems to have been awarded by a little-known Hungarian university in a manner that would never pass muster in the U.S. or the U.K. There were family, friends, and a business associate on the judging panel. Oh, oh, and he's also not being bounced because he was charged last year with trying to take a gun onto a commercial flight. I mean, he was charged, but, you know, whoopsie, wrong bag. The reason that Gorka has a brand new bag now is the issue of security clearances or lack thereof. It has been reported that he could not get a security clearance, so serving in the White House at a security capacity, a waste of his prodigious talents insofar as he had to be excluded from anything important. By the way, Gorka was denied a security clearance to work in the Hungarian parliament also about 15 years ago, and that hurt his ambitions within Hungarian politics. It has gotten so bad for Sebastian Gorka that he has also reportedly been denied a coupon code for Stamps.com. That is his level of security risk. He also will not be issued a members-only jacket, did not clear that high a hurdle, and he's not good enough for grape nuts. Now the former Breitbart editor will, if he stays in government, have a different job. Here's how the Washington Examiner describes what that job might be. Gorka's new role will deal with the war of ideas involved in countering radical Islamic extremism, a senior administration official said, and will entail an appointment to a federal agency. I hope not HUD. War of ideas. That is a war that Sebastian Gorka has been a casualty of for quite some time. On the show today, I spiel about Donald Trump and footwear. You will know them by the tips of their toes. But first, New York Times correspondent Gina Collada has written about strange diseases, including one that afflicts a South Carolina family. They are afflicted with a version of something like mad cow disease. It is a spongiform encephalopathy. And their struggle is not that they could cure it, but just whether to learn if they have it. Gina Collada is here to talk about it now. Like a lot of families, the Baxley family of South Carolina had a medical choice. But unlike a lot of families, their choice wasn't course of treatment. They had a genetic inheritable illness that cannot be treated. Their choice is to know about it or not. And that, of course, is going to affect their lives. The choice they made is fascinating. The illness itself is fascinating. How we found out about 
The ailment is fascinating, and it's all in Gina Collada's new book, Mercies in Disguise, a story of hope, a family's genetic destiny, and the science that rescued them. Hi, Gina. Thanks for coming Hi, Mike. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. This is not the case where you wanted to write about a disease. I I don't know what your motivation was, but the book does not read as, oh, I want to write about a disease, and I'll use the journalistic uh, method of telling the story of the disease through a family. I I really got the sense that you wanted to tell the story of the family and how they dealt with the disease. Absolutely. I got interested in this story when I wrote about one member of the family who had to make this decision for the Times, and it was just a simple New York Times story. Like, do you want to know and then what? But then when I got to know the family, they were amazing. And I had this very astute editor, and I said, you know, this story, if I tried to write fiction, I couldn't make this up. And he said, write it like a novelist, only it's all true. Write it like a novel. And that's what compelled me. I. I I was I loved the family, but their story was incredible. And the disease is incredible. The disease too, right. So why don't you tell us what that is and how it shows up? Well, this is a disease that had sort of been around, but nobody really quite appreciated it. And then in the 1950s, a very eccentric and egocentric guy named Carlton Geideschek got interested in a mysterious disease in New Guinea that he thought would make him famous. And it was killing more women than men by far. So why would it kill more women than men? Is it a poison? Is it, a, is it something infectious? Is it some sort of a vitamin deficiency? And in the end, he really never pinned it down. So he actually got a Nobel Prize for this, but he never knew exactly what it was. And and, and you detail how the very rudimentary uh, ways of diagnosing it that he had. But for years, people were studying the brains of people who suffered from this disease and also the sheep disease, which is called scrapie, and also what we know now is mad cow disease, which is, uh, they're all forms of spongiform encephalopathies, I right? think. Perfect. And then it gets, thank you. And then it gets to... Um, Another researcher who also wins a Nobel Prize, Prusiner? Prusiner. Yeah. What's his contribution? He decided that this was not, even though everything that's ever been known to be infectious seemed to have some genetic material, DNA, RNA, this didn't. And he said, it's a protein. Okay, meaning if it doesn't have genetic material, it can't be a virus. That's right. That's virus. Everything that reproduces has Mm. genetic material. So how are you going to have something that is reproducing and infecting things doesn't have any genetic material. So he has this he had this hypothesis that you had a protein that folded in a funny way and then it touched and that was the start of a disease. And every time it touched another protein that was like it, it misfolded the other protein. So it was like a, a chain like a dominoes falling mm-hmm. over, like a chain reaction of misfolded proteins. So once you set that in motion, you're gonna get you're gonna destroy the brain, you're gonna get holes in the brain. And there are some people who don't really believe it. They say it's against all the laws of biology. And when the Nobel Prize was given, they said that we recognize there is controversy over this. And the problem is that Prusner is practically he and his students are almost the only people working on this. These yeah. diseases take years to develop, they're rare. And so he kind of has a feel to himself. So I think that many people are convinced or they're just sort of beaten into submission. But there is a whole con- there are contingents of people out there who say it doesn't make sense. We don't really understand this. So what is the disease that the family in South Carolina has? It's not exactly Kuru, is it? No, it's not. It's known by its initials, GSS. It's an unusual disease. It strikes usually in middle age. There's this whole group of diseases and they're all based on changes in one gene, which is the prion gene. And it causes neurological problems. In the Baxley family, 
almost everybody, it started with problems coordinating their hands. Can't your handwriting deteriorates? A dentist can't do his work mm-hmm. anymore. And then pretty the soon, guy drove off the road. Is yeah, that's that right. He drove off that. the road. He was trying to walk down steps. He kept stumbling. Pretty soon, you're sort of weaving. People think yeah. you're drunk, and that's why the the, the sheep version is called scrapey because right. they, they would scrape, they would stumble and scrape against uh, the sides right. of barns. That's why the mad cows seemed mad. That's because right. They were stumbling. That's yeah. right. So this is like the human version of that. And then after a while, you can't walk at all. You can't swallow. You can't talk. You have to use an alphabet board. Pretty soon you lose your ability, even your your coordination, even to use an alphabet board. It's uniformly fatal after like five or six years. And there's no way of preventing it, slowing it, stopping it, anything. It's like it's like Al, uh, you call it Alzheimer's and Parkinson's combined, but maybe a little worse. Although those are well, that's a, the disease. That was the names the doctors were throwing around when they didn't know what it was. They yeah. just sort of said, "Okay, we'll give it a name." Yeah. Okay, so how many members of this family are affected by it? Well, they traced it back for five generations, but in the book, the people that were mentioned were let's I have to count them up: the grandfather, the his um, his one two sons, an aunt. And a cousin, five people in the book were affected by it that I knew about. And then there's this very young woman, Amanda. Amanda, right. 23 years old, I yeah, think, when we meet her. Right. She that's has the decision. So she wants to know, do I have it? That's what did right. she? How did she explain to you how she made the decision to go through with the test? She said she was always somebody who had to know what was coming. She couldn't live with this kind of an uncertainty, and her mother begged her not to do it. Her father was in the last stages of the disease. She mother said it would kill him to know that you have the gene, you're going to get the disease. Yeah. And her boyfriend said, don't do it. It will destroy our relationship. But she said, I, I'm sorry, but I just have to know. So she went ahead and she sent her blood off for this blood test. And the way that they told her was kind of amazing. She sent it to a place in, in San Francisco, actually where Prusiner works, yeah. a couple floors up. They are one of the few places that study this disease. And they said, you were going to get the results in about six weeks. We'll have them in a sealed envelope. We want you to be sitting in South Carolina in your psychiatrist's office with some people there for support. Over the speakerphone, I will, their doctor said, I will open the envelope and I will see the result at the same time as you do and tell you the results. I mean, it's almost like a reality yeah, TV show. Yeah, or the isn't worst it? version of the NBA draft or something. I know. Yeah. But she was sure she didn't have it. And the doctor opens the envelope and says, I'm sorry, Amanda. And it was it was so horrible. She screamed and told everybody to leave the room. Her mother was there. Her boyfriend was there. And then her her psychiatrist was crying. And then she called them all back in and said, okay, what are we going to do about it? She was an amazing, she is, I still know her, and she's still around, she's still fine, an amazingly strong person. And she remembers things that I, I would be so traumatized, I wouldn't even be able to remember what that was like. How does knowing it, how does it affect her life? She thought she was totally prepared, and she said, you can never be prepared. And she said it's it's hardened her in a way that things that, you know, she used to care about, she kind of doesn't anymore. She now has three kids, and she says she feels that every day has to be special. 
You can't just sit around and do nothing all day because you don't have that many days. And she tries to make something special for her kids. So she would, every year on their birthday, she would, she does a video and she says, you're three today and here's what you can do and here's what's special about you. So they'll have something to look back on. So they'll have some memory of her other than the memory of what she's going to become and what they're going to watch her become. She tries to tell them as much as they can understand along the way that this is coming. But she knows that her kids are probably going to be teenagers and they're going to watch her die like she watched her father die and that her husband's going to have to take care of her. It's not been easy. The marriage hasn't, you know, the mar- their marriage is fine. But the boyfriend who said, who said this will destroy oh, yes. her relationship. Yeah. Yes, he actually decided he could not leave her yeah. and he asked her to marry him the next day. Yeah. But it's as happy as this story could be because the kids... Because the kids, because she used a technique called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which went against all of her religious principles. They were fervent Southern Baptists. And to them, this technique involves in vitro fertilization. You take the embryos and you test each one to see if it has the mutant gene. If it does, you throw the embryo away. So to her, that's the same as abortion. And half of her embryos were destroyed. And it was very difficult. Her mother never approved. Her father would not have approved. But she knows now that these three children she has do not have the gene. She said, the disease stopped with me. And so that, I can't can't advise her on theology, but there is a case to be made that it is a pro-life decision in a way because right. the life of her children, every next generation will now avoid this terrible fate That's right. through uh, technology. That's right. Yeah. She, said, I mean, she said it was in our family for five generations. It stopped with me. And that was very powerful. The other thing is that, you know, this, it's, you, know you sort of hate to try to find silver linings in a terrible disease, but it is a disease that changed the whole family. They were very proud. This humbled them. It it showed it it made them sort of reach out for and they were support. A South Carolina lo- family of the year. They were. I didn't know they there was were. Such a thing. I didn't either. Yeah. They go to the governor's mansion. Governor There's a big ceremony. And not because of the disease. Just no, because no, because people. they were because yeah. they were they exemplified yes. the family characteristics that they wanted in South Carolina. So it brought a lot of them together. I mean, no family is perfect, and it brought people together in a in a way that. Almost nothing else could. So, to me, this was not a depressing book. Even you know, it was a book about a fa- like a novel about a family. I felt like it was a novel. Things I could never have made up, but it was a book that sort of showed how one family managed to get through it and to sort of still maintain their values and to sort of have their love for each other deepen. But if they were, as you say, a private family, why were they so open with you? And that's a really good question. I asked them that myself because I thought they don't know me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I don't think I would trust a strange reporter who comes in and wants to write about the worst thing that ever happened to me. What on earth made them yeah. do that? From the New York Times. I know. I know. Carolina. I know. Yeah. Can you believe my editor said, how do they feel about a New York <laughs> Times reporter coming down? I said, I don't know, but I think we're getting along pretty well. Although it was weird because I was, you know, it's, it's a different world to me. So, um, um, well, Amanda said that she wanted this story partly for her kids because she wanted them to, to know the whole the whole story. And she wanted people to understand that that actually does exist. She also wanted people to know there's different ways of dealing with the decision of do you want to know if you have this disease and this gene. And she said she would not have wanted to know. And one of her daughter, her daughter, other daughter, not Amanda Holly, said, I don't want to know. She said, it's not for me to know my future. 
anything, you know, no matter which way it comes out, it's not going to help me any. It's going to happen or it's not. It's in God's hands. So Kathy said she would have felt the same way. And she wanted people to realize that there are different ways of, of dealing with this. Are there any policy implications or anything about how the uh, how our system, either by law or by the norms of medicine, are not serving patients or even lessons to extrapolate from this disease and what it says about other diseases? Well, there's a couple things. One of them is that there's that diseases get attention often because somebody is a celebrity yep. or whatever, like ALS. It got so much attention. It's Lou Gehrig's disease. Right. And it's and very Christopher Reese. Yep. These are very rare diseases. And yet they, you know, the, what, what gets attention, what gets funding is often kind of capricious. People are always arguing about this. Why are we giving so much money to this rather than this? It's totally capricious. And this disease, GSS and all the prion diseases, they don't have a celebrity and people almost don't know they exist. How so prevalent are they now? They're like one in a million people. They're not that prevalent, but then how prevalent is ALS? Yeah. I mean, it's not prevalent, but they, you know, they are always struggling to try to get funds. And they and there are good ideas on what to do to try to treat it, but getting it's expensive to do these things. So there's there's that. The other kinds of lessons are that um, I was really surprised at the way when I went to the meeting of the CJD Foundation, which is like an umbrella foundation for all these prion diseases, and almost everybody had a lot of trouble finding out what the disease was. And what happened was doctors kept saying they didn't know what it was. So instead of saying, I don't know, yes. they would make something up. Like in the case of Amanda's grandfather. Oh, it's a combination of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. They didn't know. But they just had to say a diagnosis. And that was, you know, that was not helpful. The medical community not admitting what they don't know. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Mercies in Disguise. Gina Collada is the author. It is a story of hope, a family's genetic destiny, and the science that rescued them. Thank you, Gina. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Donald Trump, our president, has a capacity, it is said, to grab his followers by the lapels or to tug at their heartstrings or perhaps to hit them in their gut. Somewhere torso-centric, for sure. Not the head. Because he plays well in the heartland. You know, the breadbasket. The small towns and steel mills that make up the backbone of America. Again, not the noggin, not the gourd, not the kepi. Those have never been his domain. But now we find evidence that Trump is strongest further south, right there in the feet. Tip of the feet, in fact. Here's Face the Nation's John Dickerson. He is out there swinging every day for those guys who wear boots with steel toes on them. And here is the vice president yesterday on Meet the Pence. Somebody said to me recently that everybody that puts on a steel-toed boot in this country knows they've got something, somebody fighting for them every day, and it's absolutely true, and it's President Donald Trump. I wonder who that somebody was. Maybe it was the lady who visited the White House with her friends Kid and Ted. And that is refreshing because he, as he builds things, he builds big things, things that touch the sky, big infrastructure that puts other people to work. He has spent his life looking up and respecting the hard hats and the still-told boots and the work ethic that you all have within you. 
Okay, but despite all that stuff about how real Americans live in small towns and drive trucks and wear baseball hats. Oh, yeah, that's part of it, too. Hats. Remember that? Hats are now part of the culture war. Remember Michael Moore explaining how he knew Trump would win? I was watching a couple weeks before the election. I, can't, I don't know who the guest was, but you were remarking, somebody was remarking here about how the expense report for the Trump campaign showed they'd spent more money on ball caps yep, right. that month than anything else. And your panelists were going, <laughs> ball caps. Right. And I looked at that and I thought, wow, yeah. there's the bubble yes. right there. The market. They don't understand. Which brings us to steel-toed shoes. In the red states, we wear steel-toed shoes. In the blue states, we eat steel-cut oatmeal. The illogic is that steel-toed boot sales, they haven't spiked and they haven't slowed. Same with baseball hats. Steady growth in sales up 1% or 2% in line with population trends. So why does the presence or acknowledgement that some people wear hats or steel-toed shoes or that some people find late-night comics too smug or the Outdoor Life channel their cup of tea, okay, not tea, Miller High Life, why does all that hit home so often? Why do pundits think that they have to explain the choices of Americans by their outward signifiers, the things they wear, the music they listen to? You know, it's always been true that there are some Americans whose tastes are less cosmopolitan and that there are some Americans whose tastes are more. Somehow that tells us about the rise of Trump. If so, we would see a rise of tastes of the less cosmopolitan variety. Yet NASCAR has been tanking. I mean, there's always been city slickers and country folk, NASCAR fans and yoga enthusiasts. I looked up the demographics, the outward indicators of type of Americans wax and wane. They do so in no regard to presidential appeal. If you were to try to discern if a nativist candidate in 2016 would be far more popular than a nativist candidate in 2012 or 2008, you couldn't look at camo sales or steel-toed boots sales, or country music sales, and get any sort of indication. And yet, when that candidate gets into office, we say, oh, those type of people explain him. Side note on all of this, the trend of populism is sweeping the world. So does this mean that the Dutch version of steel-toed boots, like cedar-heeled clogs, are also on the rise in the Netherlands? You know, today I read an article in The Atlantic, how late-night comedy fueled the rise of Trump, Subhead, sneering hosts have alienated conservatives and made liberals smug. Right, exactly. This is the first time in history where the jesters have elected the tyrant. Come on! This is an era when TV ratings have fallen to historic lows, when there are millions of other entertainment options at 11 or 11.30. If you actually look at the ratings, Robot Chicken routinely beats half of those late-night shows who caused Trump to be president. On Meet the Press, Danielle Pletka asserted, The Democrats were meant to be the party of the people, and instead Donald Trump really got elected as a man of the people. Argue with it all you want. But at the end of the day, they looked like the party of Beyonce. We saw that at the White House Correspondents' Dinner last night. They're the party of Beyonce and Barbara Streisand. Hey, Beyonce. Yeah, well. Okay, but Trump invited Ted Nugent and Kid Rock to the White House. So it's the same thing, right? How does Beyonce's presence define one political party, but Kid Rock's presence doesn't? Is it because Beyonce and Barbara Streisand are more successful? Therefore, if they show up to a political event, it means something greater than if Kid Rock or Ted Nugent do? And by the way, 
Barbara Streisand was a Democrat when Bill Clinton won, when Barack Obama won, when they were huge political forces and the Democrats were ascendant. So why is she a talisman now and not a talisman then? Why does her presence mean that the Democrats are at sea versus the Democrats have a clue and are connecting with Americans? So as I was watching Trump's Harrisburg rally with all this talk of, hey, these are the real Americans and those people at the White House Correspondents' Dinner or the Samantha Bee event, they represent phoniness. The feebleness of the argument just enraged me. And even if we for a second conceded this fiction that we have these two perfectly defined tribes, Steel Toe versus Merlot, and if there's just no overlap and you'll never find a yoga-loving NASCAR fan, even if we pretend that that's true, it's nothing new. There have always been so many different ways to identify yourself as an American, but there hasn't always been President Donald Trump. The outward indicators as explanation, that's mostly nonsense. It's nonsense for a Democrat to uh, conduct a toe check and write off any of those potential voters. And it's also nonsense if a red state senator goes to his next town hall, asserts he's not taking away coverage for pre-existing conditions when he really is. He just might find that he gets kicked in the ass with a steel-toed boot. And that's it for today's show. Chris Brube, just producer, got his degree from a little-known correspondence college in Toledo, Toledo, Spain, not Toledo, Ohio, though the degree was in the history of Lima, Lima, Ohio, not Peru. Mary Wilson, just producer, is celebrating a special day today. Yeah, it's Sebastian Gorka getting tossed out of the White House. We talked about this. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is considering commissioning a Gorka cast, which is a semi-regular podcast wherein Sebastian Gorka argues with his own podcast and says he expected better from himself. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network. That title I just read, that's a status conferred upon him by a three-member panel. Two were business associates of his, and one was a member of a right-wing Hungarian political party. That's how it works. The gist, hoping that that new job description for Mr. Gorka, War of Ideas, is really just a long way of saying they're going to pay him to play lots of risk and stratego. Umperu, depuru, du peru, and thanks for listening.